Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Could we actually just do that, like Mad Libs, but they're Mads Libs, so everything you put in has to be related somehow to Mads Mikkelsen? Everything is people. Everything I think is... we just cornered a market there. It's, it's Cannibalism, weird you... uh, one-eyed Vikings, prophecies, space. space. It's, it's weird how you mention that, because I just rewatched Casino Royale the other night, so I just have this mental image of him just wiping away tears of blood. <laughs> That could be one of the phrases you can throw in. It's going to be a weird beginning of an episode. I have like a real beginning. We don't have to go with any of this. Also, I don't want anyone to steal that idea because it's Cracker Jack. (laughs) Cracker Jack. Mads Libs. Mads Libs. Yes, come on. Mads Libs. Mads Libs. With someone with artistic talent, could they mock this up for us and then sell it and then hand us the profits? It's like an entire party in a notebook. (laughs) Twitter, don't steal this. Please, for the love of God, it's all I have. Are, are we actually ready to record? Everyone's gone to the bathroom. Everyone's had their soup. Everyone's everyone's had their pizza. <laughs> I did actually finish my soup not too long ago, so it's good. I had uh, 35 grams of black olives. That's an oddly specific number. <laughs> are, they, are they sold in 35 gram sampling sleeves now? I or? have a food scale. <laughs> and everything must be measured. Yes, I measure literally everything. It's great. My god, you have become the ruler. I was about to say, you are the worst villain. (laughs) As a gimmick, I'd rather be Condiment King. Well, you are Mustard Man. Mustard Man with the deli mitts. See, I like mustard because no carbs. And I love a sad life now. There's almost nothing in fucking mustard. I mean, it's like, what, a calorie for 100 grams? empty nothing. I don't even know what it is. You could you could have mustard and uh, pickles and then die of malnutrition. I kind of just want to have an entire jar of mustard and see how I did. Oh, it's like super size me. <laughs> this summer from Sundance Films, Mustard Man. <laughs> oh my god! If we ever do a super size me episode, can we do social experiments on ourselves beforehand and then talk about it in the episode? I ate nothing but pickles for a month, and now you're talking to my ghost. I'm in the machine! You say that as if that's not MB's life. (laughs) (laughs) MB, you've been eating the same thing for 27 years. He's more hot pocket than alive. Pimentos every day would be horrifying. Good night, everyone. (laughs) Spider-Man. That was that was our haunting Halloween episode. (laughs) Pimento Pimento's every... (laughs) Pimentos every day would be horrifying. You would shrivel up. Spooky, scary skeletons. (laughs) Intro. Hi, I'm Cody Elfs, here to talk to you about one of the most valuable traits a student, soldier, or podcast listener can have. Patience. Sometimes, patience is a key to victory. Sometimes, it leads to very little, and it seems like it's not worth it, and you wonder why you waited so long for something so disappointing. Or the opening to our podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop show for movies, madness, and moxie. Joining me today for this Spidey-centric episode are James Lewis, Mike Napier, and MB. It may look like they're wearing Halloween masks, but they are the real Bob crew. MB gives it away. Hello, everyone. 
we actually opened the show. It's amazing. It's probably a land speed record for us. We did that in under 30 days. There's a war trophy, criminal? Cody. <laughs> it's a trophy of Cody. Hey! Just, <laughs> hey, gun fingers. Of Cody holding a trophy. <laughs> just, oh, God, it's gone too far. I like to imagine, like, we're wearing masks of ourselves, but we're all the wrong person. Like, I'm wearing a Cody mask. Um, Mike is wearing a James mask. I'm Batman. <laughs> all these masks just have dead, soulless eyes, which is confusing to people because it looks just like the real thing. It would be so disappointing that it, for a company to make Halloween masks based on us. Yeah, we don't even have any cool scars or facial be. features. That you know of. Like, just kids running around wearing a Mike mask or a Cody mask. Or... Uh, okay, to be fair, a Mike mask would be terrifying. Just the expression on your face, just discontent with everything. And the mask would have no eyes, just like the real Mike. Uh, if someone's wearing a mask of my face, I want it to be realistic as to me not having anything underneath my face. Like, if someone skinned my face, that's what I want it to look like when kids put that mask on. Oh, I thought you were just... You, this is in the moment where you explained you don't have bones. I had bonitis, so I had them removed. <laughs> I was so proud of us. We almost started talking about the movie. <laughs> the amount of times in, in, in opening of up that, an episode, you start with, I was so proud of us, we were doing well. <laughs> but speaking of having your bones surgically removed... Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> That's how Uncle Ben died, I guess. In this version, who knows? How strange is that? We finally have a Spider-Man movie that doesn't uh, go back to Uncle Ben being murdered uh, or Peter getting bitten by a spider. And it's actually set in his high school years, so it's prime time for all that stuff. But they managed to just gloss over the whole origin bit of things. I like it. It's fresh. Yeah. After... After, you know, all the reboot business and all that stuff, it's it's nice to just run right into things. We all know Spider-Man. We know his deal. What we I do love evil. is I, I do run into some people who inferred from the lack of Uncle Ben in the movie that this version of Peter never had an Uncle Ben. And, and I love how that's possible. just... Well, I just love how that the entire reason that stuff's not gone into is everyone knows Spider-Man's origin, and those people set out to prove them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does what? kind of prove. Like, I guess everyone is that stupid. I mean, they no, never if you didn't mention Uncle Ben, then he just doesn't exist. Well, they never used the classic great power line, have they? Like in its normal no. context. No. I mean, well, I, I, I guess you it's pretty cliche the, by now, but did you see the writers talking about how they? did originally include that line and how they originally included it, and thank God they didn't go with it. No. They, at the end, Happy was going to tell Peter that Tony had a message for him, and then said, with great power, and then he would just forget the rest. Uh... It's like, oh, well, thank fucking God you didn't go with that. Yeah, that wouldn't have been the best. That's amazing also, Spider-Man that... levels of stupid. That is a boatload of call-me-MJs. Yeah. Also, I think the reason that they didn't mention Aunt May, or they didn't mention Uncle Ben, it would be kind of amazing if they didn't mention Aunt May either, <laughs> despite the fact that she's in the movie. But they didn't mention Uncle Ben is because in this version, there's only Aunt Ben. <gasps> Which a twist. Ah, oh, progressive. Also, I'm now so, obsessed with the idea they didn't mention Aunt May, but she's in the movie, which means she's not there. Peter's just seeing a hot lady that he's uh, related to. <laughs> It's the sixpence of superhero films. But, well, uh, he does hear a hot lady's voice in his head, so it already makes sense. True. 
Tony didn't program that in. He's just insane. Uh, so right before we sat down to record this commentary, I was listening to the audio commentary for The Amazing Spider-Man because I hate myself. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> and uh, they start the movie off with young Peter playing hide-and-go-seek in his house trying to find his father. And Mark Webb and Navi Arad were, were talking about how this should be like the entire point of the movie. It's Peter trying to find his father. And it's important to see that <laughs> so people can like relate to Peter's emotional issues because they, they can then tell he has them. I'm really glad this movie didn't go down that path because it's much more relatable to just have a high schooler dealing with like getting dates and being bad at dances and getting bullied. Like, I don't know how many high schoolers relate to having to actually physically find their father. Like he's gone missing. I'm sure <laughs> nobody, some do. Some people does. have missing parents. It happens. But uh, I, this seems more every man, which is nice. The majority of people do not have the problem of their parents being shield spies and dying in in a mission to stop the Red Skull, which was actually how the comics did it. <laughs> I just want to say, there's nothing more amazing Spider-Man than a commentary by Avi Arad. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, th- there's a sequel to the Daredevil commentary. Kind of, kind of taking the baton away from Cody for a minute, where t- I want to touch on something that he kind of was getting to, but also just made me think of the Red Skull, so now I'm really distracted. Something he was getting to, but just did a really bad job of. <laughs> Essentially. Um, yeah. Like, I do want to just point out something here. We finally got a Spider-Man movie after six of them. After six movies, we got a Spider-Man movie that is not about him in a grand romance with one particular woman with the Spider-Man portion of his life being secondary. We got a movie that actually focuses on the fact that Peter Parker is an important character and he should be the main focus, rather than just other aspects of his life being kind of pushed to the fore, like pushed forward, but then the rest of him just being kind of left to the side and not really dealt with. Like Peter himself is the focal point. And it's really weird that six movies in, they finally got that. Well, it's kind of fascinating to see a Spider-Man movie where Spider-Man doesn't look like he's 30. That too. But where Spider-Man isn't any kind of metaphor for anything else. It's not using Spider-Man to tell a grander story. This movie is just a celebration of Spider-Man for the sake of Spider-Man. Yeah. Which is something that's kind of given the movie a little bit of flack with some people. And while I do understand where they're coming from... My thing is always going to be, okay, we got two amazing Raimi Spider-Man movies. Spider-Man 2 <laughs> And is... two not amazing, amazing Spider-Man movies. <laughs> like Spider-Man 2, for my money, is still the greatest superhero movie ever made. But we still have those. So I'm perfectly fine with seeing a Spider-Man movie that's just, hey, isn't Spider-Man awesome? Let's go see him do Spider-Man stuff. <laughs> I just also, feel like the world could use more John Hugh movies, so I'm I'm perfectly fine with high schoolers having fun hijinks. And if you happen to cross that over with superheroes, eh, that's cool. I'm down with that. Aces. Also, like, even as great as the Raimi movies are, I agree Spider-Man 2 is one of the greatest in this, of the superhero movies. They're still very particular in what they are. They're very that world. And... Uh, it's like something like the thing I got really excited about when Homecoming was announced was Kevin Feige saying, 
like in regards to the romance stuff, like we're not going to do that because Spider-Man has a lot of other shit. <laughs> and that's what's great about Homecoming. Like Raimi movies were just sort of the one thing. And also that very like 60s sort of it, very heightened reality kind of view with mostly old comics. This was yeah. kind of everything and felt more modern and felt the entire breadth of the character instead of just the narrow one storyline. Well, to, to piggyback on that, I mean, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man to me is set in a world that's the New York that a child would imagine if they've never been to New York. Yeah, it's a fairy tale. Yeah, it's it's like, well, Sam Raimi is, God, what is he, Michigan? I want to say so? Michigan. I think Michigan. Yeah, born and raised Michigan, small town Michigan. So in my mind, it makes more sense that that would be how he came to Spider-Man, you know, as a kid reading those comics and just imagining New York through that filter. And then he presents that version as the film. Whereas this version of Spider-Man is a much more, I've, I've never even been to New York, but I want to say more realistic portrayal of it. You know, there's moments where Spider-Man has to run through a golf course because, of course, there's not skyscrapers everywhere in New York. It's not all skyscrapers. It's more varied than that. It's a different area than that. Of course, they have small little rundown high schools and all this other stuff and junky little apartments with creaky doors. I, I do want to take this time to point out that Spider-Man Homecoming was filmed in Atlanta, Georgia, so... <laughs> Atlanta, New York, tomato, potato. <laughs> it's all the same. But, um, yeah, I do get what you're saying there, because it's like, it has always had kind of two clashing ideologies in terms of location, where it's like, there's the big grand stuff whenever he's fighting Green Goblin over Manhattan and stuff like that, but then there's also just... The smaller scale stuff, especially in like the Ultimate comics, where it's smaller building, it's smaller banks, is it's just kind of low. For lack of a better term, it's like just kind of low to the ground, very much grounded and of the neighborhood. And that's yeah, what so this it, movie. Raimi Spider Man never went to the suburbs. And that's what this movie gets right in terms of just portraying that particular version because spider-man in this movie isn't out to be a major superhero he isn't out to be someone who like goes into fights with people like doc or octopus or something like that he's just he's solving normal crime for the and for the first time i think in a superhero movie this superhero particularly is a character that fights normal crime and there's nothing silly about it it's actually vilifying that he just goes out, does Spider-Man things, and goes on patrol and, and helps people, like, cross the street or helps people. Uh, he he stops someone from stealing a bike at one point. Like, he just does normal, mundane things because he's out there just doing something to, for the sake of doing good as opposed to just throwing on the suit whenever a big catastrophe happens. Now, this movie is so in love with how small Spider-Man is. I do enjoy that Marvel has set up tiers of villains, so automatically there have to be tiers of superheroes to go with them. It's like if something's cosmic, you get the Guardians of the Galaxy. If something is uh, basically corporate espionage that's going to make a gigantic mech that's going to kill the president, Iron Man. Small stuff like gang members with guns, possibly laser guns, Spider-Man. Spider-Man can have that level. <laughs> it, also fits, it also fits with just the tiers that they've also set up within, like, other like with the Netflix shows and Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and all that. Even though Feige refuses to acknowledge, uh, me and Marvel in general refuses to acknowledge that on the movie side of things because I Pearl Mutter, um, Daredevil 
and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and all of the Defender characters having those areas of New York, it kind of set up a weird precedence for this movie to happen because this is the big screen version of those shows where you get a smaller scale level of crime, but at the same time, it's done in a much more tonally appropriate way for Spider-Man because it's not downtrodden and down to earth. And like the web films tried to do, it's not depressing. Like it's not trying to be a Spider-Man that's more realistic and darker. It's it's just it's Spider-Man. It's a Spider-Man who's lighthearted, who jokes and quips, who has pratfalls and has to deal with comedy errors, and he can't get his web shooters to work correctly, so he has to like you know, fiddle around with that. And that's where part of the joke comes from. It's just he's in over his head because he's still a kid and he's still learning. But at the same time, it makes him a more rounded character because you get to see those flaws. And you get to see, like, as the Raimi films, they had the flaws of Peter Parker present, but they were on a lower scale because his flaws were more like, oh, he forgot that he couldn't wash his costume with the rest of his clothes, and now some of his clothes are stained. And then the rest of it is just, like, his big flaws that he can't get over at Mary Jane. Like, that's always at the forefront, no matter what you do to show the more flawed element of Peter Parker's that it always rolls back around to the one thing. Whereas this actually well, hold rolls on, down- wait up. He also got fired from his pizza delivery job. <laughs> he was always late, Alex. <laughs> MB. Don't tell him his slave name. <laughs> Not at all. But um the idea of Peter actually being a character who is shown kind of warts and all of like, okay, he has flaws, but they're very him. They're very based in what he wants and what he wants to accomplish just with his overall goals of just being Spider-Man rather than this is what he wants to accomplish in his personal life. And that's all that matters to him. And being Spider-Man is a crutch on that, which you get a little bit of, but you get it in the same increments that you get he wants to be Spider-Man for this reason, because you get Spider-Man having a goal in this movie, which is interesting because that's a really fresh perspective and a really interesting take on the origin story, because this is an origin within an origin. It's not, you know, it's not the traditional origin of gets bit by spider, gets the powers and power responsibility, all that. Like this is him learning how to become Spider-Man the superhero, as opposed to Spider-Man just the idea. Well, I find that very fascinating, because I think that's something that's been lost on a lot of people, especially those that say the movie doesn't really have a dramatic core, and it's just Spider-Man things happening for the sake of Spider-Man, which is Homecoming is a low-key origin movie, but instead of it being about Spider-Man getting his powers or Spider-Man, you know, deciding that he has to become a superhero. It's Spider-Man slowly discovering what being Spider-Man means. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's a a coming of age story. Yeah. Well, it's at the beginning of the movie and, you know, in Civil War, Spider-Man totally thinks he's just going to be an Avenger and he's going to be the next Iron Man. And he's that kind of superhero. He's Superman. And Homecoming is all about bringing him down to Earth and making him realize, no, 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 you're Spider-Man. Yes, this is Spider-Man's place. Yeah, you don't you don't get to you don't get to go to outer space. You don't get the supermodel girlfriend. 
you don't get the penthouse apartment. You are Spider-Man. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what's profound about the movie is like it doesn't talk down to him in the way it was like, okay, you're this type of character and that's you know, that's just all you're ever gonna be because Peter Tully has the potential to be more, it's just he hasn't gotten there yet, and what he learns is that he doesn't want to get there yet. Like, I love the distinction of that, as opposed to just, this is something he wants, but he's not going to get it yet, so we're just going to leave him hanging. This is a decision he comes to on his own. He decides that, much in the same way that they did in Amazing Spider-Man number one, whenever he decided that he didn't want to be on the Fantastic Four, he doesn't want to be an Avenger by the end of the movie, and I feel like that's more in tune with the character than anything that we've seen in any of the other movies. Like, I consider the Raimi movies absolutely holy, and Spider-Man Homecoming still feels more authentically Spider-Man than anything we've ever seen, just because of little character moments like that. Well, as Mike said, like, very astutely after watching it, Raimi's Spider-Man is one particular shade of Spider-Man done beautifully. Homecoming is a celebration of all of Spider-Man. <laughs> like this isn't this isn't just Lee and Ditko Spider-Man or Lee and Romita. This is McFarlane Spider-Man. This is a little bit of Straczynski Spider-Man, a little bit of Ultimate, a little bit of Dan Slott. This is all the Spider-Man things at once. Everything in a beautiful, I, beautiful soup. <laughs> can I rewind for one second to make a really dumb joke about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man? Go on. Yes, I have permission. <laughs> one thing I can say for Raimi's Spider-Man films, they really stick with you. If I had that soundboard mic, I would put the drum noises in myself. You're not getting a soundboard. <sighs> you this just cinched it. Like, this, this is not... You, you're not getting this. Is this my own version of Spider-Man Homecoming? Like, did I just have my suit taken away? <laughs> Yes. You took Karen, you it, monsters. <laughs> Look, Cody, if you're nothing without the soundboard, then you shouldn't have it. Oh, I feel like I'm learning something, but I'm totally confused as to what. Flexo homecoming. And then Cody has to pick up a mattress that fell on him. <laughs> I am box office pulp. Come on, as, as long as Mike... Come on, box office pulp. As long as Mike has mentioned that scene, now seems as good a time as any to get into it. Because to me, that's the creme de la creme of the Spider-Man film, and probably to a lot of yes. other people. Peter Parker trapped underneath all of that rubble, and having more or less a panic attack. It's a moment of vulnerability that you rarely get in... Spider-Man cried. Yeah, in an action film, or a Spider-Man film, or a superhero film in general, you don't get that kind of sensitivity. And it really reflects, too, the age of the person. I mean, granted, Tom Holland's like 20-something, 20 21, and he's supposed to be playing a 15-year-old. He's he looks, tiny. He looks closer to it than any of the other people. Like, Tobey Maguire never really seemed like a high school student. I think he was 26 when they filmed that yeah. movie. I, I do have to say, I, I watched the first Spider-Man movie and the second Spider-Man movie in preparation for Homecoming, and it is hilarious to see that first scene of Tobey Maguire, just grown Tobey Maguire stepping onto that school bus. <laughs> and it never gets old for me. What's it's that like pedophile that's just... doing here? <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel about two, though, because that's like the whole movie's in a high school. And it's like, eh. He's in college. He's still like is he? 30. That is true. Yeah. yeah um, he's, no. he's middle-aged by Spider-Man 3. It's weird. 
And but, he seems much older but, but than I'm, Dunst, even though they're the, about the same age. <laughs> no, I was talking Amazing Spider-Man 2 as well. Like, his, oh. Garfield seems very old. Oh, yeah. Garfield is also like in his 30s. Look like, yeah. Look like he's there. So it's great to get a young Spider-Man that actually feels like a young Spider-Man. It's not just lip service. They're really putting him through the paces of, like I mentioned before, all the John Hugh kind of moments. He gets to have all of those experiences. He gets a wacky friend sidekick who's an outcast like him. Uh, Flash actually gets more time to bully, and they did something different with Flash where he's not even just punching him. I'm just, I'm so fascinated by this version of Flash, who is the most realistic bully I've seen in a movie in a very long time. It's like, no, that's that's what all the bullies in my school were like. I'm fascinated it, it, it was Flash. usually the overachieving A-plus students who were the worst bullies who treated the other kids like shit. I think Flash really actually uh, encompasses a lot of what's great about Homecoming and how it attacked the mythos of Spider-Man and decide to kind of recalibrate it both for the MCU, both for the modern world, and just for something that's a little bit more, not necessarily real, but realistic-esque. Yeah, Where, and as, yeah. as much as the movie sticks close to the spirit of Spider-Man, yeah. it doesn't seem like they give two fucks about the details. Because, I mean, look, at this is no like no Flash we've ever had before. Uh, Shocker is another good example. Like, they even throw in a Shocker 1 who's pretty much classic Shocker and then replace him with a guy who's way too smart to be Shocker. <laughs> well, okay, I just want to talk about this for a moment. <laughs> they made Montana the original Shocker for no other reason than to nod to spectacular spider-man and that means the world to me yep that that's their not that's how deep their knowledge and deep cuts of spider-man went they referenced that cartoon and the prowler yeah but, just the fact that we get those kind of shadows that no one's gonna really pick up on no one's gonna look at like a name drop of aaron davis and be like oh my god that's a thing that's important and Miles exists in this universe, which they can do nothing with, but it's important that he does. <laughs> what, I, what I love, like, what I so fucking much loved about Homecoming was, like, removed from the MCU world, removed from Spider-Man, it had been a while since I had watched a movie where inside the movie I felt like I was watching a fully realized world. And I don't oh, mean, yeah. like, in a sci-fi sort of way. I just mean, like, that school felt real like a character just the the betty brant stuff was funny of course but just added so much extra color to everything all the other kids no flash it felt like there was so much going on beyond the frame that you were seeing that you were actually in a world and these characters were walking around in it and that was dumb kind of question about I've the missed. details dumb question about the details and this has bothered me and it's probably a really dumb question uh when Peter is talking to the principal, they have, you know, normal set dressing in there to make it look lived in. But there is a portrait on top of one of the uh, the file cabinets of like a military profile. And it's just bugging me. It's like, is this a weird throwback somehow to the Howling Commandos? Yeah, that was his no, grandfather. Yeah, yeah, OK, actor. that's what I was. That's, OK, that's I thought actor. I recognized him, but I wasn't sure if I was being racist. <laughs> <laughs> But, but you're very right. It's like all the kids in that high school have relationships with each other. And you feel like a movie has been taking place long before you walked in here. See, that's something that's dawned on me about this movie after watching it, which is Homecoming exists as the sequel to a non-existent first MCU Spider-Man movie. 
Like, this is a Spider-Man franchise in progress. And because of that, the second you step foot into it, you're just in a Spider-Man universe. Yeah. One thing I love that you brought up, Mike, that uh, I, I do want you to elaborate on, because you made this, like, really eloquent when you first talked to me about it, is that the kids that Spider-Man interacts with are not his, like, they're not on a different level with like they're not on a different level in terms of class with him. They are his intellectual equals it, the, in that they're all they're all science students. Yeah, the brilliance of putting Peter in a a science slanted school and like when uh when like when Liz first showed up and her role in the school proper, like that kind of blew me away because I was, you know, going and kind of expecting based on, you know, just normal movie Spider-Man things and, you know, past Spider-Man films that uh, she'd be like the, the popular older girl in the school. Like, no, she'll be the cheerleader. Yeah. Like, no, she's actually one of Peter's peers. She's on the team. She's leader of their team. And all of the kids are on Peter's level intellectually. And that really fascinated me because it removes a lot of, uh, bullshit kind of stereotype storyline tropes that we see. Like, Ned's not the, you know, dopey, dumb friend. He's just as smart as Peter is. Liz isn't, you know, the popular... isn't just the popular girl. She's just as smart as Peter is. Um, What's her name? Uh, Call me MJ. Michelle. Oh, uh, Michelle. Uh, Michelle I'm only is... calling her Mary Jane for this episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, She's, you know, kind of quietly on... Uh, Peter's level flash still gets to be a bully, but from a more, you know, classist sort of angle, he's on Peter's side intellectually, but he just falters, you know, differently to him. You know, for his thing is that it comes easy to Peter while he has to work for it when he feels like he should be handled, handed to it because he's rich. And it's all that kind of stuff that like that one change of going to that science school, uh, opens up so many more avenues of character and storyline they can mine and puts the entire supporting cast on a completely different plane than they would be, where they would honestly mostly be kind of unimportant in comparison to Peter because Peter's going to be walking around being, you know, the intellectual brilliant nerd. Instead, like, the he's really smart, but that's not what makes him a nerd. He's a nerd because of his, you know, social awkwardness and crap like that. Well, it's also not just an outsider because he's smart either. It's the fact that he has to run off and do Spider-Man stuff. That's, I love that twist on it where it's like, okay, he's an outsider and he's kind of has this resentment going towards him. But it's not because he's just a nerd and, oh, he's a nerd, oh. It's because... He's Spider-Man, and he keeps running off in the middle of important things that the group has to do, and they don't really like the fact that he's constantly letting them down because he has the Stark internship. And that's that's my Peter Parker. He's always going to touch everything he turns touches turns to shit. Yeah, that's like in my mind, that's the number one quality Spider-Man needs to have. No matter how good his intentions, he's going to break everything around him. And it was and so I, great I just, to just watch that happen over and over again throughout the movie. <laughs> and I like how that manages to brilliantly sidestep something that can be a little bit insidious with characters like Spider, like with characters like Peter Parker. That whole like, 
oh, the world shuns me because I'm secretly better than them kind of thing. You see yeah. all the time yeah. in superhero comics. Like, that doesn't really fly in 2017. Like, there's an entire side of the internet that thrives on that idea. So, yeah, it was very, very intelligent of them to dismantle that and have Peter come from somewhere else entirely with his anxieties and uh, his inability to fit in. And also it just makes Peter even more of a loser. He's the biggest <laughs> nerd at nerd school. <laughs> Can't science your way out of that one, Parker. Also, I just realized something horrifying about Spider-Man, which is if you kept 60 Spider-Man with the same like personality intact, he'd just be a gamer gator. Yeah. Hey, really? But God, get, speaking of like just the diversity of the uh, kids Peter hangs out with and what a brilliant job they did there. This is such a tiny thing, but can I just say I am so happy there's a gay person in the MCU. <laughs> Even if it's just that one kid who has two lines and slaps Peter on the ass. I love like, the diversity of that school so much. And New York. Oh, yeah, like, and, and there's a twist in the film that relies on people not expecting an interracial marriage. Aha, you were the racist. <laughs> <laughs> you were the real Vulture audience. <laughs> Vulture was right. <laughs> I, I do feel like like that just levels the authenticity even more where it, it's not just a bunch of like whenever you see Spider-Man in the comics or like even in the ultimate comics which are more updated and more modern in their approach because they were done in 2002 or 2001, 2002 that area it's still just a parade of white kids like yeah. there's nothing that really makes it that different from apart from just newer clothing and newer, just from a visual standpoint, whenever you see him hanging out in school. Yeah, that's and, really weird going back and reading Ultimate Spider-Man. Peter just goes to a school in Switzerland, apparently. <laughs> I don't know, man. He could transfer to Wisconsin. <laughs> but it's, it's so interesting just seeing a Spider-Man movie that felt, feels that authentic and that alive and it gives uh it gives a, a it feels like a breath of fresh air for the mcu in general because we've spent so much time with our feet off the ground in these movies it's so cool to just be brought back down to earth and just see queens in the mcu yeah can i say i, I love yeah yeah, how... yeah. no go on Oh, I, I was just agreeing with the idea that it's great that they've reduced stakes. Yeah. I mean, yes. every Marvel film gets bigger and bigger into the threat. But I mean, by the time we get to Infinity War, it's literally going to be, hey, there's a gauntlet that can destroy all of existence. So it's, it's great to have movies where you don't have to worry again about a giant sky portal opening up and blowing away billions of lives. This is no buttholes. This is this is on uh, a matter of theft and a couple of lives at risk. Fairly small potatoes. I like. I just, I just love the simplicity of the the stakes of the third act are the vulture's going to steal some stuff that he's going to use to make weapons that might hurt some people. Yeah. It's specifically in Peter's neighborhood. Because not only is that just a refreshing lowering of stakes and something you can more easily wrap your head around, it makes everything Peter does in this movie so much more humanistic. Yeah, he he's called into action not because... 
oh, the world might be destroyed or New York might be destroyed. He's called into action because he sees a shop that he regularly goes to be blown to bits by one of these weapons. And he realizes that if multiple people have these weapons, then more shops could be at risk. More people could be at risk. More just people that he knows could be at risk. You get the sense that it's more it's people that he interacts with every day that he's concerned for. It's not just, oh, well, in a general grand sense, it, the world might be destroyed or something like that. It's it's less of an abstract concept. It's it's more, in a way, it's more heroic because it's him looking out for people that he can actually put a face to and actually like see and visualize in his mind, which I think There's is There's no really glory cool. to that. The stakes are just about doing the right thing. And in doing that, it allows Spider-Man to find his role in the MCU by essentially facing the rest of it and arguing with the MCU that, yeah, they don't really, they just kind of fight robots. <laughs> they don't really, like, fight crime or, you know, they, I mean, the movie very dire directly addresses this as an MCU problem by even having Tony say that, like, oh, it's below our pay grade to actually kind of handle stuff like that. So we're just going to call the FBI, even though we're superheroes. <laughs> Another reason, like, Tony Stark does not seem like the kind of role model you would ever want. <laughs> like, Robert Downey Jr., as always, knocks it out of the park. But again, it's like, oh, man, Tony Stark, let's add 10 more reasons on the list of why you're a douchebag. But at least I did like the fact that with Tony's role in this, they at least scaled back and made him have an actual point for doing half of the stuff that he did, as opposed to just the random acts of evil that he's been going on for the, ever since Age of Ultron, essentially. Yeah. It feels it feels in character that Tony Stark would be like an absentee father. <laughs> like he Very would he so. would want to train you, but in like a very like I'll get I'll I'll, I'll check in on you kind of way. Like he doesn't want to get up and close and personal with your progress. He'll, he'll let you go through happy. But there's also just there's hints of the fact that he is more personally involved with the fact that he mentions stuff like he mentions like the churros. He yeah. mentions stuff that Peter specifically left on a message to Happy because it informs you that Tony actually personally goes through those messages and actually. I don't think he does. Peter. I think he gives them all to Happy and Happy begrudgingly writes them all down in exactly detail. <laughs> I'm trying to make Tony sound greater and you're just taking it away from me. I think that would be Happy's job, though. Like, Happy would hate it the whole time, but he would go out and do it because that's his job. I feel like the, he just sends, like, these Donald Trump-like emails <laughs> to Tony. Like, and then Peter said this to Tony Stark, and then he ate a churro and told Tony Stark about it. He just has to mention Tony Stark every sentence, or he'll, he'll just get bored and go fight Starro or something. <laughs> but I, I love... Like, I've become really fascinated by this, that ever since Iron Man 3, Tony Stark has just been having a character arc through other characters' movies. <laughs> to, to the greatest extent in this, where there's so much subtle character work done with Tony in this film, oh. it's the fact that there's just a throwaway line during a comedy scene about Tony admitting that he had an absentee father, and he's trying to break the cycle of neglect. <laughs> and all, just all the uh, the unsaid implications of civil war. That yeah, Tony Tony realizes he's kind of a piece of shit, and he's trying to actually be Iron Man now. He has a very quiet kind of background character arc that you can 
easily miss, but it actually is there and kind of comes to completion by the end. It's weird and unexpected. <laughs> and this, and this movie piece, does... This, like I say, and this Tony got back Pepper. I just like how that's the end of movie plot twist revealed. <laughs> so, yeah, you've been watching Redemption Iron Man all along. I would like to think all the characters have these kind of arcs going. We just haven't paid attention. Like Hannibal Burris's character is like secretly going through some heavy shit the whole time that we just never saw. <laughs> and I also just love the fact that this movie goes out of its way to explain that Tony on some level, at least, was wrong for bringing Peter into that conflict. And that he <laughs> What, he because realized... he brought a 14-year-old into a war? Yeah, you would think that would come back to bite him, but, you know, Tony... It was brought up. The it. Vision told him that was wrong. <laughs> and The Vision... Let, let me just make something clear. This movie also establishes that The Vision just lives on a nightmare world without doors. <laughs> he doesn't believe in him. And everyone is really, really uncomfortable with this fact. I like you see don't see the alternate version of events where Peter does move into the compound and he's next door to the vision. That'd be the best wacky teen comedy buddy movie ever. Like he just ditches Ned and Ned spies on the whole time while vision him have wacky adventures without doors. Hello, little boy. Oh, that's homecoming too. <laughs> Instead of Iron Man, it's a it's a Peter and the Vision team up. Peter Hello, has to teach, Karen. Peter has to teach the Vision how to love. Well, Karen's his ex-girlfriend. What if they just remade Short Circuit, but with Spider-Man <laughs> and the Vision? Oh, and then you can have the villain be Silvermane's head. <laughs> <laughs> they already had that sense of humor in the movie, so it, it could work. And we've got Shocker. Shocker's still alive. Do they even capture Shocker? No, Shocker's still at large. He's he's going to get that costume. God, I can only really hope. They hinted at it. They gave him the jacket, kind of. I could easily see them just doing superior foes of Spider-Man in this universe. I would, nothing would make me happier. I think I, those villains are about the only ones they have the rights to because of Sony. Probably. I love so much how this movie also very subtly builds Spider-Man's rogues gallery as if it's the most important rogues gallery ever, which it is. Mac so it's Gargan. <laughs> evil Mac Gargan just he's not even like a private eye or anything like that it's just he's just a slime ball and you ju he's just there to tell you the scorpion will be a thing and I love that like Aaron Davis flat out just at one point says oh man what do you mean what do you mean crawlers like he, he goes towards he goes towards them because he may be able to climb walls and become the prowler He's going to get revenge for that ice cream Spider-Man melted. <laughs> it, it's very appropriate that a Spider-Man movie is the MCU film where they remember that the villains are also a whole universe unto themselves. See, I'm, I'm just realizing for once we have a Spider-Man movie where Spider-Man's best friend isn't destined to become a maniac in a mask who's going to blow him up. Uh, Unless that's their of. plot for Ned. Yeah, Ned might become Green Goblin 3. Who knows? Well, Ned was technically Hobgoblin for a little while. That was retconned, but the what basis is technically is still there. What does technically Hobgoblin even mean? Like, how, do you, uh, how do you technically he, become the Hobgoblin for a day? He, he was killed off in a story. Then because of editorial mandate, they revealed like six months later, no, he was Hobgoblin the entire time. <laughs> and then like ten years later, Roger Stern went, and brought back the Greek, the Hobgoblin was like, no, 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 he's Roderick Kingsley, shut up. <laughs> there are, like, 
te- like quote unquote technically hobgoblin is like a subgenre of Spider-Man. <laughs> like it's a whole thing. Spider-Man is it technically like, hobgoblin. It seems like such a weird, weird crime to be guilty of. Uh, we find you guilty of technically being hobgoblin. That's two sentences served consecutively ten years in the slammer. Can you imagine the amount of people Matt Murdock has had to defend for being accused of being technically Hobgoblin? Remember, Ned Leeds was posthumously Hobgoblin. (laughs) How insulting is that? They reveal the Hobgoblin's identity, and it's a dead guy who was just shot in a a random issue. (laughs) Oh, Hobgoblin, how we love you. Guy in the chair. Can we get Hobgoblin in the next movie so that they don't even yes. bother with Green Goblin? Uh, you have no idea how happy that would make me. Cor- they, they again, reference Spectacular <laughs> Spider-Man and have Courtney B. Vance as the Hobgoblin. <laughs> Courtney B. Vance is flying around on a glider. Ah, 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 ah. My I'm a fashion mogul. <laughs> it's heroic Hobgoblin, too, from Axis. Got a problem? Call Hobgoblin. Also, can we talk about how surprisingly amazing Ned Leeds is? Oh, he's that character, that character I just assumed would be annoying after five minutes. And he's the heart of the film. <laughs> they, the supporting cast in this movie is phenomenal through and through. There's not any really weak links. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned Hannibal Burris before, but honestly, I think he has some of the best lines in the movie. And they're just oh, like definitely. him muttering, muttering stuff under his breath that you could easily miss. Marissa Tomei just being the salt of the earth, just the the humanity of Spider-Man. Like, I love the, the fact that they took the promise of an Aunt May from Civil War and just expanded upon it to the point where, oh, that's why Marissa Tomei was cast in this role. It wasn't just a statement, it was just... She could also be an insanely, like, really good motherly figure. And kind of sisterly figure at the same time. Like, that's how that works, and I like that dynamic. I'm I'm weirded out they gave us an Aunt May who curses. It was odd. And gets hit hit on every time she goes out to eat. I don't don't know how to process that. I like how they're just keeping it a running joke. No, everyone wants to fuck Aunt May, and it makes Peter really uncomfortable. Here with her many restauranteur circuits. suitors. <laughs> I, was, I just, I love the subtle thing of implying that Aunt May is where Peter gets his personality from and not Uncle Ben. Yeah. And they are best friends. It's such a it much feels... more realistic way of portraying that relationship that just really rings true to me. Yeah, and aunt and nephew actually acting like an aunt and nephew in not only just a superhero movie, but in anything is very rare. And I love that that change was made because Ant-Man's Peter Parker in the comics is always just, it's like a grandmother and her grandson all the time. And it just, it never really, it's something where it's like, you just kind of accept it because it's always been there. It's nothing you really think about, but it takes something like this to kind of hold a mirror to that and just make you realize, oh, that's that's not actually how that works in the real world at all. And the way they're doing it in this movie is very much just, okay, here's all these relationships, but let's do them for real this time. <laughs> and I feel like that's also a good reflection of Ned because, no, Peter wouldn't keep all this to himself all the time, but that would be weird and would make him stir crazy and... 
possibly psychotic, and he would turn into the Spider-Man we all know. But um, all know and love. You, you you say whatever you want to say, man. All know um, and love out of fear of Spider-Man attacking you and taking out your brains. Or I mean, he's the emissary of hell. Possibly making a deal, yeah, with Satan to dissolve marriages and whatnot. <laughs> that that Spider-Man thing. <laughs> you know, as Spider-Men are wont to do. A spider. A spider God, could you this. imagine? Could you imagine this Peter Parker having an elderly Aunt May? How weird would that be? It'd be pretty weird, especially if they play it the same way as they do in the movie right now. Like she's getting free dumplings. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, Rosemary mm-hmm. Harris. It's it's also nice because it, it it certainly breaks from Raimi Spider-Man, where Aunt May would have a dedicated scene or two in each movie where she would just give wise sage advice to peter that he would sit down and mull for a while and this one we don't have to do that which i mean it does feel very comic booky and it's enjoyable to watch but it also doesn't seem like it fits in with the mcu style well this movie is obsessed with undercutting peter's importance which is kind of brilliant yeah it's like no if, if aunt may gave a Raimi speech about responsibility and morality to peter that would be making peter way too important <laughs> but no, I like it. I mean, you see that with uh, copyright free Mary Jane as well. It's like nobody <laughs> cares about Peter or Spider Man or what he's doing. <laughs> he's not important in this universe. He needs to get over himself, which is the the more Spider Man way of going about it. Very much so. I, I love how Peter has to figure out everything for himself. And it it's it makes things for the future really interesting because I want to see how like for instance how is the Daily Bugle and J Jonah Jameson gonna fit into that status quo like how are they going to make a profit off of selling sensationalistic headlines off of Spider Man if Spider Man himself is just kind of a neighborhood hero and I I, I look forward to like the actual restructuring of that where they kind of look at that and say okay. Here's what they did in the other movies. This is what we can do with this version to fit this Spider-Man because it has to be different by its own sort of nature in that they set up this version of the MCU Spider-Man to be its own specific thing. So it's going to have its own specific set of characters that it needs to build up. Like they can't just open the next movie with Doc Ock being just like ends of the earth Doc Ock or something like that. Like you can't just threaten the, the world with uh, just an early global warming or something like that. Like he, he has to be a specific sort of Doc Ock to match this Peter Parker, and that's the same thing that you have to do with a lot of other different characters that they have been introduced. Where you have to recontextualize everything. But I am genuinely fascinated by what those are going to be because I like this version of Spider Man. I like this version of just this world. I, I already know what they're going to do with J. Jonah Jameson. Peter Parker is going to get a job at InfoWars. You were thinking Alex, that too? Yeah, Alex Jones will be J. Jonah Jameson. And he'll just what? be saying crazy stuff about uh, Spider-Man turning all the uh, cr- criminals gay in the city. And uh, Peter Parker will be really uncomfortable with this, but still have to pay the bills. I love how for the longest time, Jameson was really quaint. And now we're just back around to, no, no, Jameson would totally exist in 2017. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't be a newspaper mogul. He would He would definitely be news. Like, he'd, TV he'd be, news. He'd be elected president. Ugh. 
But um, but yeah, that's the thing. That <laughs> Vice just, President like, Mac Gargan, still the <laughs> Mac Gargan from this movie with the scorpion tattoo and like the one glassy eye with a scar. <laughs> no, he's the press secretary. <laughs> he's uh, the mooch. Uh, can can we ask Jay? Uh, can we ask a pres uh, question to President Jameson? No. <laughs> this conference is over. What you are going to do is you're going to hop into your car and you're going to forget that you were ever here. And whenever you go to sleep tonight, you're going to think, Matt Gargan told me to go home. And even though I will not hear it, I will know that you are thankful. And then his mechanical tail busts up the podium. <laughs> I love, I just imagine him as 90s Scorpion during that entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... But it's, yeah, that's the thing that excites me the most about this as a franchise, which is we're going to watch this Spider-Man grow up. Yeah. And, and it, it didn't have, like, useless world building necessarily for outside things. I'm so glad we didn't get a bunch of tips for, like, the upcoming Tom Hardy Venom film or, or like, the Sinister Six lead up where we have to have, like, 10 end credit scenes that are specifically hinting that Spider-Man has a larger enemy and conspiracy to figure out. It was just a nice little standalone film that has potential for more entries. And I love how, with him being in the MCU with a promise for many, many appearances, they do have that blank check there where they can totally have him be a terrible superhero for a movie. Because eventually you're going to see him earn being a superhero and become movie Spider-Man and fight real supervillains. And he's yeah, gonna we're going to get to watch that progression. We're going to see him learn how to web swing more fantastically. Because I, I love the fact that this version of Spider-Man web swings, but he doesn't do it in the, like, choreographed, like, aerial dance that Grammy did with. Like, those those were amazing, and I love those scenes, but this version of Spider-Man is just so different because he just... Everything he does is out of a sense of fun. I love the fact that this Peter loves being Spider-Man as opposed to being tortured by it all the time and gets yeah. nothing out of that. Like there's an equal balance because you still have the scene of him looking at like looking down and seeing Liz at the pool and just not being able to take part because he has to do something more important. But you also get him like messing around with the web shooters and doing all this sort of cool stuff and like being really amazed at all the things that the suit can do, like kill mode. <laughs> Which like Tony put Tony... in there to teach Peter about mortality. <laughs> sure. I think it's just another great sign that Tony does not understand Peter at all. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> give him a, this kid needs a kill suit option someday. I'm sure that's what Peter Parker will grow up and want to use, the kill option. God, I what's love horrifying... that kill mode. <laughs> running what's, what's horrifying is that, that that keeps being brought up by the artificial intelligence who wants to constantly utilize it for different things, and Peter has to keep telling her, no, don't do that. I keep saying, this is how they're going to do the symbiote sock. It's just Karen goes rogue and then takes over Eddie Brock. I also just love the fact that we have a component in this movie that was very controversial when it was hinted at, because we all thought, oh, God, they're going to give Spider-Man an overpowered tech suit, and he's going to do all these things that he really shouldn't be doing, and it's going to be really out of character for Peter, but... I love how they give him an artificial intelligence and he just uses it to talk to a girl for the first time without any <laughs> impediment. Like I love his relationship with Karen in this and how Karen is the only person who's like, who genuinely likes Peter because he just, he can be open with her because she's not a real person. 
which speaks to Peter's loneliness, but also speaks to the fact that it is really just a cool thing that has never been in the comics until much later on, like with Mary Jane and all that, where he has someone he could be 100% open with. Like, even with Ned, he can't be like that. But with Karen, they're much more in tune where she knows literally everything about him, so he has no filter, and he can just lie on his back and just have a scene in full costume where he just talks about how much he really likes Liz Allen and wish he could have the courage to ask her out and stuff like that. Like, little character moments like that, and little moments of just humanity from Peter, where you get the sense it's like, okay, this isn't someone writing a kid, this is just a kid in a, in a super suit with superpowers. Like, it's, there's no real, like, breaking down of any of that. Well, the, the MCU has always had a bit of a problem with some of its characters being too cool for certain things. Like, that's the thing that's kind of killed the Iron Man movies after Iron Man 1. Iron Dude, Man we, is... You're talking about Spider-Man being in high school and you didn't use the phrase too cool for school. Come on. Shut the fuck up, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's got like the Iron Man problem. Iron Man's too cool to fight villains. He's too cool for a supporting cast. He's too cool to be a superhero. Spider-Man in this movie is built up to be as uncool as possible in every single scene and to be vulnerable in a way that superheroes aren't really allowed to be in modern superhero movies. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And just speaking of just uh, teenage hijinks, I just want to take a brief moment to talk about how awesome Zendaya is in this movie as the best version of Mary Jane, even though she may or may not be Mary Jane. The the name call at the end was a little unusual, but I did really enjoy her character and the weird kind of quiet stalker thing that was going on. The reverse of the normal Peter MJ relation. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I, I really just, liked about it. I just love this, like, weird, deadpan version of Mary Jane Watson, which would just be what Mary Jane would be in 2017. And a Mary Jane who's actually, like, uh, socially conscious about certain things. That whole, the whole exchange of, like, hey, man, slaves probably built the uh, Washington Monument. <laughs> I got that was in a Marvel movie. <laughs> <laughs> also just is a Mary Jane that, play, like, harkens back to the more comic-accurate interpretation of what her early life was like because this is a Mary Jane where you could actually see her coming from like more of a broken home who kind of masks everything with like this face of just you know nothing really bothers her and she's just ambivalent to everything and that yeah. it's a different it's a different idea of the party girl motif that she kind of takes on the comic books where I kind of expected I will say that I kind of expected her to show up at prom and just be like glammed out and just kind of that would be the first showing of that. But I'm kind of glad that they didn't do that because she still stays true to that basic idea of her character because Mary Jane in the comics, you know, her thing is always she throws on as much of a mask as Peter because she has to deal with just all this stuff uh, internally and she's kind of putting on her own secret identity. And that's what makes them kind of compatible is that. They've both had to live with stuff that they just don't want to deal with to the outside world. So they kind of have to be these different people. She, like, Michelle in this movie is the outsider 
sort of chick who isn't afraid to speak her mind, isn't afraid to say the thing that nobody else will say, isn't afraid to just throw the finger up at authority, essentially, because she just, she openly mocks teachers to their face. She sketches them. Like, it's it's really cool touches like that that really pay, play more into the rebellious nature of who Mary Jane was when she started off in the comics. Where, and she's barely in the movie, too. Like, she makes that much of an impression in, like, a handful of lines. A handful of scenes, honestly. Like, there's there's one scene where she shows up just to kind of be a throwaway joke where Peter's in detention and she just draws him uh, being mopey and then she just makes a pouty face and that's the entire joke. I, I love the and fact And she's that, just there to hang out. Like, I love the fact that they could build up a character that could just have that kind of a payoff to where it's just, it's not, not every single scene needs to be important, which is such a big contrast from how Gwen was in the amazing movies or, or how Mary Jane was even in the Raimi movies was because every single scene featuring them had to be life or death stakes. Almost. I'm, I'm so glad that this Peter just has relationships with girls like a normal fucking person. (laughs) Wow. He's, he's allowed to talk to more than just one girl who is the only girl in the world to him, and she's his forever love. I think uh, he and Liz could have worked out, though, if her dad wasn't the vulture. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just talk about the moment of pure, pitch-perfect comedy of Peter going to take Liz to the homecoming dance, and... Papa Vulture opens up the door. <laughs> it's like a joke we would make. Like, I honestly looked at that, and I was thinking about it, and it's like, that's a, a Spider-Man joke. That is something that we would say, like, hey, kids, who wants pizzas? And it's just him in the full costume with the wings. <laughs> we would have made it Craven the Hunter. Hello? You're here to take a girl? He's but on I just an love how. <laughs> I just love how because... All of the spoilers got it wrong and said Michelle was his daughter. That was actually shocking. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, uh, it's weird because in the novelization or the junior novelization, I think it was, it's different because Michelle, I guess, turns out to be his daughter. So all the trades reported that as like a big spoiler, which, you know, thanks a lot for that, for wanting to spoil that twist uh, news sites. But it led this like weird, like sort of accidental turn where you figured because that just sounded so fake he either wasn't going to have a daughter or that was the twist and that was just going to be really lame and then all of a sudden Liz's father turns out to be the vulture (laughs) you don't expect that at all and he just shows he just opens the door and it's just so casual I just love how they never said that was Liz Allen we just assumed because her name is Liz but no she's totally Elizabeth too daughter of the vulture (laughs) that's what her business card says every time she goes somewhere and i just love the moment like following that where it's like oh that's why they cast michael keaton as the vulture (laughs) so he could be the super villain and be dad and bring in nachos (laughs) also because he's just contractually obligated to only play bird people now or flying creatures forever and always Forever and always. That's what he played in Herbie Fully Loaded. I do love love the fact that there was a movie I watched, like a superhero movie I went to see in theaters. Not once, well, okay, once, only once did I think Batman. 
And that was a one shot that Mike and I have been obsessed with ever since the concept <laughs> art came out of the vulture leaning over a rooftop in a Batman-like pose, which I think was done just for us. I just love how comic books that shot is. I didn't expect it to be in the movie, because, like, okay, that's a thing comic book vulture would do with his wings draped down and the, the, oh, like the like movie behind him. That's a classic John Romita vulture uh, pose. Like, there's a very famous uh, splash page to the Wings in the Night uh, story that's almost that, exactly. I like how this movie loves Spider-Man so much, it homages Vulture things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Spider-Man's most iconic villain. <laughs> Going back to that twist, though, what is also great about it is just oh, when, spoilers, like... Spoilers, by the way, everyone. <laughs> spoilers, spoilers, Spider-Man dies in the end. Uh, God, if only in the madness. Um... Actually, he did. Everything that happens afterwards is just his death rattle, like in Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, Spoilers just, for Jacob's squished. Ladder. <laughs> um, I love with that twist, like, right when Vulture, you've just kind of, like, you've just seen Vulture be pretty straightforward, just evil. Like, you kind of start to maybe kind of lose the page with them a little bit, you know, reconnecting back to the uh, the prologue. Boom. Dad Vulture immediately humanizes him. And then slowly go back into villain mode over that amazing car ride scene. And that adds, like, so many different uh, depths and layers to Vulture after you just kind of allowed him to be a villain for the entire movie. So it's, like, perfect timing for that, going into the third act. It's it's peeling back an extra layer and giving him an, an, a sense of depth that you didn't know he had to begin with even though it is hinted at in the prologue because, you know, he holds up a drawing and he says, like, eh, pretty talented kid, huh? Yeah. And, like, he, he's a working man who legitimately got stiff. Like, one of my favorite things about this movie, bar none, beyond what they did with Spider-Man and Peter's character and all the stuff that they did with the interpersonal relationships, they finally made Vulture a character that I actively want to see more of. Like, Vulture is so cool in this movie because he has a logical running off point where he actually has a motivation to become a villain. You see his tech, which is really cool. Like, the design for the costume in this is so insanely well done. Like, from the helmet, which is terrifying, and the wings, which are really cool. And even the kind of, like, bird jacket that he's given is... It looks real, and it looks like a thing that you would actually just put together as a flight suit. And then you see him commit these robberies and the way he does it is just so ingenious because he uses alien tech and he does all these like new and different things that makes him a formidable villain. He he's, he shows up and he's a bigger deal than Spider-Man because <laughs> Spider-Man has been so leveled down from that point that he's so out of, Peter's depth of field that it, it takes him kind of scaling things back and setting his priorities straight to finally be on terms where he can fight the vulture. And even then he can only kind of barely fight him. Yeah. At first I was actually a little bit disappointed. There wasn't, you know, more of an aerial battle between vulture and Spider-Man. Then I remembered, Oh yeah, this Spider-Man would be brutally murdered by this vulture. <laughs> I, he could not actually fight him one-on-one. -on -one. Like, the way that that third act battle goes ex is the exact way it needed to go. Oh, yeah. Well, I just, I just love how everything about the Vulture makes perfect sense. Like, not just his motivations, but 
I understand why he commits crime the exact way he does. Like, his a whole operation makes sense. Putting on the vulture suit makes sense. <laughs> it's amazing to have a villain who just does everything logically, and you can totally see where he's coming from. Yeah. Yet is still allowed to be a bad guy who needs to be taken out. And Keaton is so insanely great at pulling off all the different layers to this version of Tombs because he's a humanistic villain, but at the same time, when he wants to be scary, he is scary. And that car ride where he flat out threatens Peter with a gun is... You feel as in peril there as you do when Peter is being dragged through the air by the vulture. Like, you, he's just as menacing without the Susie as with it. And, and I love that. And I just want to add my favorite thing in this entire goddamn movie. They have that confrontation. And then the vulture tells Spider-Man not to sleep with his daughter. Because he's still a dad and they still have that talk. <laughs> Nobody else could have played that character. Oh, this, was, this is written for Keaton. I just love the fact that there, there was a version of the Vulture that was written for Michael Keaton. <laughs> because, of course, there was. And, like, this is my favorite MCU villain easily since, like, Ronan. And even then, I would say I, I like him better than Ronan. Uh, he's the best movie villain by far. Oh, yeah, he's he's the cream of the crop for, for Marvel villains. And, mo and just, honestly, some comic book movie villains in general, really. And... My favorite thing about the way Vulture is handled, which is his entire storyline hits home something that I think makes Spider-Man Homecoming very, very special, which I don't really see a lot of people talking about. See, as huge of a fan of uh, modern superhero movies as I am, the one opinion I do share with the detractors is it's sometimes frustrating with how apolitical most of them choose to be. Like, with the exception of Winter Soldier, most of them are kind of contempt with just being about really broad issues. Like, you know, teamwork is good and, and the like. I've kind of wanted them to take more of a page from the Netflix shows, books, and see at least a couple every now and then try to tackle bigger issues. And... Homecoming very sneakily does this because there is an entire class issue going on throughout this entire movie that you see time and time again. You see it in the high school with Peter and Flash. You see it in the superhero community with Spider-Man and Iron Man. You see it you know, in the aftermath of the alien attack with Toombs' outfit and damage control. This whole feeling that... There's an upper class that does not give a shit about the lower class. And this idea that people like Toombs' outfit are living in the wreckage of wars being fought by people high above them that don't care about the people below. And I think it's kind of beautiful that this movie makes Spider-Man the mediator between those two groups. Like, Spider-Man is the guy who is part of the lower class but can totally rub elbows with the higher class of superheroes and kind of point their attention downwards and remind them where they have blind spots. That's actually why I would really love if the sequel 
Like, they've talked about the fact that the sequel is most likely going to feature another big Marvel character. That's why I would really like the next movie if they had to have another Marvel character enter in there. I want Peter to have a team up with Captain America because Steve would be the guy who would really take that hardest, I think. Oh, or he, yeah. would, he would kind of see that and realize, oh, man, we, we've really got to change things with the Avengers and really got to, like, do something more meaningful because he would be – he came from that. You know, he came from that unlike, you know, Tony Stark, unlike Natasha, unlike even Banner, who's, you know, a brilliant scientist or Hawkeye. I don't know where he came from. <laughs> Nobody cares where he came from. He's, he's Canadian. <laughs> But um, like I I do think that it would be a really like in terms of the storyline, in terms of keeping that theme going, because you're right, it is a major theme of the movie, and I'm so glad that there are moments like t- like uh, tombs aboard the ship, like pulling out the Iron Man helmet and just tossing it aside out of disgust because he doesn't care about that. He's just after the stuff that'll bring him fame and fortune, and he's not gonna vilify Stark by you know, taking the Iron Man helmet as if it's his or something like that. It felt like a very, like, middle finger type moment. But I love the idea of taking Captain America and bringing him back to those lower, like, street side type of crimes. And I think Evans would play off of Holland really well with that. They definitely seem to be building towards it. Yeah. From Civil War onward. And and also just we, we've talked a lot about like the, how great the story is and how great like all the characters are. One thing that we cannot leave this episode without addressing is that Tom Holland as Peter Parker goes through about fifty-five to sixty years of comic book continuity of different interpretations of Spider-Man and Peter Parker and nails like every single one of them. He gets to be every Peter that I've ever seen in the comic books. He's, you know, he's very well-rounded. He His performance is so good in that he manages to capture just every little articulate emotion that Peter could possibly have, both in and out of costume. This Peter is able to be sweet and innocent and also be a smartass at the same time. And his quips are very understated. They, they don't make a big deal out of the fact that Spider-Man is quipping, but he still quips. Which I feel like is the perfect like balancing of the Raimi and the web versions because one didn't really quip at all and the other one made too much of a big deal out of quipping to the point where Peter Parker wasn't really important. So this version is just kind of it's the marrying between the two in that this is how just Spider Man should be and how he is in some of the best comics. That's the real arc of the film. It's just gonna be Peter getting slowly better at quipping until he's doing Tony Stark's the entire time. It's all about that sass. So I think we finally covered the entire cast at this point, piece by piece. One thing we have not touched on uh, that I want to get in before we wrap things up, the score. Because, man, uh, the first 30 seconds of this film, when Giochino's classic Spider-Man 60s cartoon theme kicked in over the Marvel logo, people took about half that time to realize what it was. And then in my theater, they just lost their shit. It was fantastic hearing people (laughs) figure that out. I didn't I didn't get that moment with my audience. I, I, that sounds amazing. There was like slow ripples of laughter before people realized like, oh, that's what it is. I think more people are probably familiar with it from like uh, like the Simpsons making the spider pig joke. <laughs> but they got it eventually. Giacchino's score is so insanely well done because 
to me, it doesn't really outdo the Raimi score, but at the same time, it's the same way I felt about Hans Zimmer and, and Howard's version of the Batman score, where it exists for a version of this character, but it's just as equally valid. And I love just how this goes through, like, the score, for my money, is my favorite of Giacchino since probably the first Star Trek. Like, I love how many different just beats and emotions that they do and how Vulture has a villain score that is just bombastic and His menacing. monster movie score. It's like a Hammer movie. It it really is just like, kind of like a Hammer movie score. Like, it's like he's Dracula or something. Well, I love how Giacchino also brought back, without just doing, you know, the score from the Raimi films again, just brought back kind of the vibe of it, but more fitting the vibe of this Spider-Man with the, you know, the where it's kind of like a crawling spider sound effect, which was very important to the score of those movies. And he kind of brought that back, but in the, you know, a different, a completely different angle that more fits the tone of this film versus, you know, the Raimi films, of course. And his score is so varied. Like it's very, there's not one distinct sound to it other than just the Spider-Man theme running through most of it. Like it's, it conveys so many different moods, which Giacchino has always been brilliant at. Yeah. I just love how the second people kind of noticed that the Marvel scores were getting weak, Marvel just went bullshit and hired Michael Chichino. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, shut the hell up out of everyone. You shut up and you sit down. Yes, sir. How is Giochino functioning? Is he a robot? He I has like so. four big pictures a year. And none of sleep. his scores sound the same. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't eat. He only composes. <laughs> he is the perfect living organism. Take that. I just, ima- I just imagine like he has the conductor's like stick and he's waving it around, but he's doing everyday things like eating toast. And there's a full orchestra like accompanying him whenever he's eating toast. Man, I don't want to eat toast to a Giacchino score. It'd be so breathtaking. What would the title be? I don't think we can quit this episode until we come up with a punny toast title now. <laughs> I'm going to leave that all to you, Cody. Oh, yeah, God, I pun shouldn't... master, interrupting everybody uh, with your goddamn puns. Uh, uh, it's an important part of Giochino's process. I want to say half of his fame is just through the fact that he gives all of his title tracks silly names. Don't deflect. Damn it. Uh... <laughs> no, that's a Bill Nye joke. That doesn't quite work. Uh, Science-related, though, so that's kind of towards the mark. Oh, no. Um... Uh, if this was something about Rocky, we could go with the classic Ryder the Kaiser. Um, that's a weird Al joke. I totally stole that. Credit where it's due. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Bread and butter. No, Ned, Ned and butter. Uh, <laughs> well done. That's this track of box office pulp. <laughs> <laughs> and now we all have to go home forever because we're going to be murdered for that. <laughs> if you like this podcast, I'm so sorry. Uh, please uh, remember to subscribe or rate us on iTunes and or Stitcher, whatever your preferred listening method is. You can also find us, of course, at boxofficepulp.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash boxofficepulppodcast, and, of course, we're always on Twitter, listening to you and trying to get Frank Grillo to kill Cody at Box Office Pulp. One of these days is going to happen. I'm a limited resource. Well, now okay. that Bokeem Woodbine has the 
those gauntlets that he stole from the corpse of Frank Grillo. And it, it could be him now. And I did say he doesn't make a good chapter because he's too competent, which is a weird, not quite backhanded compliment. It's like a front-handed compliment. Herman would be very Either happy way, to hear this. Yeah. I like the idea also of um, Frank Grillo killing Cody. And then we pick up Cody's microphone and then throw it at somebody else and go, you're Cody now. <laughs> and then villainous music plays. The as curse goes, continues. Right on. <laughs> uh, I believe that's a wrap, everybody. Get out of here before Frank Grillo murders you. Paul Cat... Or, uh, now, pod- see, we're screwing this up left and right. We're terrible now. We gotta end this. Podcasting mode. Deactivated. <laughs> and like that... He's gone. Uh, we talk about Spider-Man way too much. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. So did my condemn be post the wayward commentary to the internet, and having no further concern, the boy sought podcasting adventure in the West. Many wars and feuds did they chat about, honor and fear were heed upon their name. In time, They became internet kings by their own hand. This story shall also be told. Pulp Nightmare, a podcast undreamed of. There are a lot of issues that plague the... (laughs) Greetings and salutations, kiddos. It's me, your old goblin in crime, Roderick Kingsley, here with a special message for you, my adoring public. You may have noticed lately in my many, many appearances that I've had a bit of a spring in my pointy-booted step. No, boys and girls, the secret to my success is no wonder drug or miracle diet, but an elixir of the spirit. And, like a Halloween-themed Jehovah's Witness, I'm here to spread the good news like a bombardment of pumpkin bombs. The good news... Of graphic novelism. But, Uncle Hobgoblin, you ask? What is a graphic novelism? Don't interrupt me, you little shit! But yes, the tenets of graphic novelism are quite simple. A love for the comic book form in all of its forms. A rejection of the complacency that keeps it from reaching further heights. And, most importantly, a refusal to fall into the dark pool of negativity that has strangled the life out of this culture for too long. Since becoming a devout graphic novelist, I've rebuilt my goblin game from the ground up, soaring high above my fears and insecurities, as though they were the skyline of New York City. And all you have to do to walk this path is look deep within yourself and send your credit card number care of Ronnie the OG Hobby at gobmail.com. Or if you want to be a total Norman about it, just listen to the Graphic Novelism Podcast, where Alex Cook... James Lewis and Mike Na- Na- Napier preach their love for the medium and warn against those that may do it harm. Remember, ladies and gents, 
If you want to be the hobgoblin of whatever it is that you do, listen to graphic novelism. Subscribe to it on iTunes and The Stitcher. Leave a rating and a comment. Visit graphicnovelism.com. And for God's sake, kill Spider-Man! For another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs>